took somebody who's implementing the policy to see that. And, you know, the power, the voice was from the manager, right? Because the person having going through the policy uh, as a direct report, they don't really have a lot of voice here. They can go and complain and say, well, you know, that's the policy. I'm sorry. That's the response, right? But if all of a sudden those who are implementing the policy become a voice for those who don't have the power, that, that is key. This is the Rebel HR Podcast, the podcast where we talk to HR innovators about all things people leadership. If you're looking for places to find about new ways to think about the world of work, this is the podcast for you. Please subscribe from your favorite podcast listening platform today and leave us a review. Rebel on, HR Rebels. All right, Rebel HR listeners, thanks for joining us this week. We've got an awesome show scheduled for you today. Uh, with us today, we have Erica Gonzalez-Smith. She has been working in the equity, diversity, and inclusion area for more than a decade. She's a certified coach helping with executive leadership and diversity, equity, and inclusion development. Uh, she has her own consulting company. And today, I'm really excited for this conversation. If you are an HR practitioner or a people leader, and you're wondering, how do I make my workplace more equitable, more diverse, and more inclusive, uh, you're going to want to stick around for this one. So Erica, thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning. How are you? I am doing very well. We were just talking before we hit record. Uh, we are both doing this from home and working with uh, with sick kids. So, you know, fair warning to the audience out there. Um, we are, we're, we're pulling double duty right now, but thanks for joining me. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Absolutely. Su super excited for the conversation. So um, I had an opportunity to uh, get to know Erica through a local um, uh, a local group uh, that was focused on economic inclusion uh, called the Economic Inclusion Coalition. And Erica works uh, at the University of Northern Iowa, um, and uh, she is really focused on policies that help make uh, the workplace more equitable, more diverse, and more inclusive. And so I'd like to really maybe start the conversation by understanding uh, a little bit about the work of creating those types of policies. So Erica, um, I think I'll probably start with what got you interested in that type of work? Oh, gosh, that is a wonderful question. I would say that my journey in equity, diversity, and inclusion started pretty much my entire life, you know? So my parents are originally from Guatemala and we migrated to Canada where I grew up. So I was about 10 when we, we, we moved to Canada. And um, then afterwards, as an adult, I decided to accept an appointment with the University of North Carolina Greensboro. And that brought me to the United States. Um, and it was actually in that transition that I really became aware of Race. I mean, I was always aware of equity issues as a minoritized woman, right? Um, I was always aware of some of those components, but it really became very real as soon as I crossed the border. Um, and, you know, as soon as I crossed the border, I became Hispanic. And that was like, it was so prominent. I'm not saying that I wasn't that in Canada. Um, of course I was, but it, it just felt so different when I crossed. So that was something I didn't expect. 
Um, and that was back in 2011. So I was already interested in this work, creating equitable spaces, especially around leadership development. Um, but with my own experience, as I migrated to the United States and all of a sudden, that, you know, label was just so heavy and it had meaning. It had such meaning. And I had a couple of experiences that I would categorize a little bit as, as microaggressions, um, within the workplace. And I had not experienced those in Canada. Um, not to that degree anyways, because I can't say that I totally didn't experience things, but um, not to the degree that I was experiencing them here. So that re my personal experiences, and those challenges that I faced as I migrated here really fueled the fire for me. And I became very interested in attempting to create a space where people feel safe, but also when we're able to see past um, that prejudice and that bias. So raising awareness around that um, in everything that we do. So it, it became something that I uh, I personally wanted to to accomplish. So that's, that's what kind of got me started in, in the field of equity, diversity, and inclusion. That's, that's really fascinating. I'm, I'm sure you've given this a lot of thought, but is it, um, th did you feel like the shift from the, from Canada to the U S uh, was, was purely a cultural thing or was it, was it the area that you grew up in in Canada was more just more diverse than, than, uh, North Carolina or where, uh, what do you think it was? You know, that is such an interesting question. And I've been pondering about that. I can't say that I have an exact answer because certainly in Canada, there's prejudice, of course, you know, there is bias in Canada as well. Um, I think as Canadians, perhaps we are a little more polite about it and maybe not as likely to say something that, um, would be, offensive. I'm not saying people don't think it and that it doesn't happen. It certainly does, but not to the same degree here. So, you know, um, a couple of experiences that happened to me, you know, it was kind of, you know, I started connecting with individuals in Greensboro because I didn't know anybody. I mean, I, I literally just packed my bags and came on an adventure. Um, right. Uh, this was an exciting, I was so excited to be in, in North Carolina and just, you know, I fell in love with the South previously on a travel, on a business travel. And I was very excited to be there. And then suddenly I, you know, I started feeling this, you know, race was a very heavy topic. Uh, it was very real, um, especially in the South, as you can imagine, right? So, you know, there's a history there and it's very much still prominent, I would say. Um, and a couple of people came up to me and said, oh, they're like, oh, are you, you're Latina. Um, you know, I would have never guessed. I'm like, well, I'm not really sure what that means. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody at, uh, after I had done a presentation, um, with a particular group, you know, they came up to me and they were so excited and somebody so eagerly, I mean, I could see her, the best intentions in her, you know, she came up to me and shook my hand and she's like, Oh, Erica, you know, you, you are one of the smartest Latinas I've ever met. Oh man. And that, that, what that just kind of cut me like a knife, you know, um, I wasn't quite sure what to make of that. Obviously there's so much stereotypes as to the roles that maybe Latinos have in the community. Um, it's certainly not a comment you would say to somebody else, you know, I, if, if I had been white, you know, somebody would have not come up to me and said, you're the, you're the smartest white person I've ever met. That's not a comment that would have been said. Hmm. So 
you know, as I started experiencing some of those comments over and over again, and it was also from the other, from another angle too. So, you know, I started connecting with Latino community in Greensboro. Um, and I became, I've always been very passionate about education. I've worked in higher ed my entire life. Um, and pipeline issues for education are something that I'm passionate about in removing some of those barriers for youth, in particular for Latino youth. Um, you know, so I started connecting with a couple of organizations that did that in Greensboro and in North Carolina. And uh, as I connected with other Latino in particular, in this case, women and men, but, you know, this particular comment was also from a woman. Um, you know, she said to me, as we were talking about issues that Latinos experience in the community, you know, she said to me, she's like, well, you know, you don't really experience those. And I said, well, you know, I've actually had some of those experiences. And I tried to, you know, share some of what I would consider microaggressions happening. And she's like, well, you know, you're not really like Latina, Latina. And I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm not sure what that means. And she's like, well, you're a little whitewashed. Hmm. So, you know, another comment that hurt. So I was like, well, you know, I'm getting it from both ends. I, it's like, I don't belong here. I don't belong there. Where do I belong? And it, it was just the sense of, of culture and the sense of race, the sense of stereotypes and biases that were happening on both ends um, that, you know, really raised the element of, of, of equity for me. Um, and what does that look like? What does inclusion really look like? And of course, in the workplace, that's a huge area that we need to consider. What does it really look like? What is, it's not just having people at the table. That's just simply diversity. Um, inclusion is so much more than that. So that's what really fueled my experiences and, um, my interest in this work. And, and then, you know, you fast forward years later, we see all of the things that have happened since 2011, right. That I've been here. Um, and this is an issue now that is just so prominent that we need to respond to It's a call to action for everybody to respond in some way or another, especially in the workplace, as we try to create inclusive and safe, psychologically safe spaces for all. Um, so, you know, some areas there. Absolutely. And uh, thank you for sharing the, you know, the personal stories. And, um, you know, it's, it's really powerful for someone like me who, you know, I'm not from a minoritized community, um, to, to hear, you know, that, um, that experience. And, you know, as I look at, you know, your, your background, you know, the fact that you, you know, have, have such a, a different upbringing than myself, for me, that's just, you know, that's, that's very interesting. And, and, you know, it just makes me curious to learn more about, you know, you and your experience, but it's also a good reminder that, you know, even maybe, a, you know, an innocent comment in somebody's mind could be perceived in a, in a negative way. And, you know, what I heard you say is you didn't really feel like you had a, you had a place. Um, and, and, and to me, that just kind of breaks my heart. Yeah. You know, and I, that, that is one of the, components that I talk a lot about when we do any kind of training or we talk about this issue is that there's a difference between intent and impact. All of those individuals and others that I didn't even share, I know those people didn't mean to hurt me or they didn't, you know, their intent was not to hurt. On the contrary, that woman who was so excited about me joining the team and bringing some information um, after my presentation, she was, she was genuinely excited about what I had to say. Um, and I know she had, she didn't mean any harm. Um, the impact though, 
mm. of a comment like that was it, it's a it's a loaded comment, right? It, it, there is so much, so many stereotypes and biases that that particular comment loads, right? So um, I, I don't think that people recognize that the difference between intent and impact. Our intent could be well the best of the best. However, what really matters at the end of the day is the impact. What, how was it perceived? What, how did it, did it harm the other person? Did it create a, a space of psychological safety or did it withdraw some of that safety for those individuals? And, you know, mind you, I migrated when I was older and I had already been working in this work, right? I had been doing this work. I would say that I, I was a little bit self-aware at that point. I had the skills to cope through and unpack what I had just experienced and make meaning of my social identity. Had these microaggressions happened to me in my early years when I was like 18, when I was still trying to find myself, when I was so impressionable, and even before that, 16, 14, um, the damage would have been for, far more harmful. Um, in my development as, as, as an individual. So, um, you know, that's something to, to think about, right. As, as we're living in this, in this very charged world, um, the impact that we could be having in those young impressionable minds or simply with individuals who might not have the skill sets to be able to unpack what just happened, uh, and reflect on it. Right. I mean, at that point I was already a certified coach. I tried to coach myself. I actually, I actually called another friend of mine who's also a coach and, you know, she kind of coached me through it, tried to make meaning of what just happened and, 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 uh, create some reflection for myself. Um, and so that it wouldn't be hurtful, hurtful to me, um, and harmful to me. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, you know, it's one of those things that, and I think, um, you know, as a, as an HR professional, you know, as a, as a business leader, um, you know, I think, I think that happens a lot where we have, we have good intentions, you know, or we're coming from a place of excitement or curiosity. Um, and we make a, you know, something lands wrong, right? The, the impact is, is negative or, or, you know, detracts from, from our intention. And, and, and that's something that I think, um, you know, it can, can also be difficult to confront if you were the, you know, you were the person who made the wrong comment. Right. And, you know, I mean, you wish you could put those words back in your mouth, but this stuff happens at the workplace all the time. I mean, and you know, I, whether you want it to or not, HR people like this is happening, your employees, um, are having these types of interactions and, and, you know, having these types of potentially negative impact, um, situations on a, on a regular basis. It's just the reality of, of, of the workplace uh, right. a lot of times. So, and I, so, sorry. And I think that's the part that's really important to remember that we all have biases. Biases is normal. If we have a brain, we have biases, right? So it's very important to remember that we're not exempt from that, no matter where you are in that continuum of development, right? Um, we are all 
prey to our own biases and we have to be able to manage and navigate through that. Um, I don't think this, no matter how much work in, in implicit bias you have done in books you read and development you've done in this area, you will never fully remove the bias. You will learn to identify them. You will learn to manage them and so that you don't act out on them. You will learn to understand where, why am I feeling this way about a particular person or a group of people, right? Um, I myself have said insensitive comments too, um, as a minor- minoritized person to another group that lack of, lack of exposure, right? So when I first moved to North Carolina, um, there are a lot of the black communities large, right? In, in, in the South. And, um, I became, so, you know, I was teaching, I was teaching a class and I had wonderful students. One of my students who was just, you know, we became very close and it was such a trend. It was community. It was a community leadership course. So it was very easy to, to connect over self-development. Um, and on one of our retreats, you know, she had changed her hairstyle and we were talking about different kinds of hair or whatever. But the, at some point, you know, I said, I, you know, I like what you have on right now. And I said the phrase, is it real? And her face just dropped just dropped to the floor. And I knew instantly I had said something completely inappropriate, something you don't say. I had crossed the line. Um, and luckily we had the rapport and trust where I was able to pull her aside. And I said, did I say something wrong? Please, you know, this is an educating moment for me. Um, and she said, yes, that is, you know, and then what she said, I'll never forget. This is one of those moments where it hurts, but it is where you're growing, right? You are growing from failure. And I knew I had messed up, right? Um, and, you know, she said to me, she's like, Erica, this is a comment that I would expect from, you know, uh, a little old lady or something like, you know, just not from you. And that even hurt more. Um, but, you know, she educated us to what, what is the right question to say? She's like, the right question is to say, is it natural? And I apologized. I I expressed how sorry I was. Um, it really came from a place of ignorance. I had not been exposed to as much of a black community prior to me living in North Carolina. Uh, in, in Canada, my high school was predominantly white. We had a few Latinos, a few Asians, but that was, we had one black family, the, you know, um, so I just didn't have as much exposure. Um, and I didn't know, I didn't know the, the correct term. And, you know, it, it was an educating moment, but luckily we had the rapport and trust where she was able to say to me how she felt. And I was able to express how sorry I was. Um, had we not had that trust and rapport, that would have been a comment that would have, you know, she would have gone maybe and spoken to somebody else about it. Right. Mm-hmm. A, a comment that hurt, a comment that, um, that, that, you know, segregated. Right. Um, and it would have taken away the inclusion that I worked so hard at in building in my class. So I'm thankful that we had that rapport, but wow, what a learning moment for me, you know? And here I thought, well, I'm teaching equity, diversity, and inclusion, right? Well, no, I mean, we all make mistakes. And um, this work is about having the vulnerability to be able to to have those difficult conversations, that courageous conversation and being able to grow from it. I will never forget that instance, never, mm-hmm. um, because it, it really hurt me knowing that I potentially caused harm to someone else. So it was an awakening moment for me 
um, in, in when I first started this work. Absolutely. This episode is brought to you by Namely. With workforces continuing to evolve at rapid speeds, it's more important than ever to stay ahead and support the people behind your business. You need the right HR solution to do that, but making any type of switch can feel overwhelming, unless you make the switch to Namely. This is the all-in-one HR solution that your company needs, and they are backed by a team of hands-on specialists that will guide you every step of the way. Namely helps you and your team stay connected and informed on each aspect of HR, whether you have 50 or 1,000 employees. With onboarding, performance management, payroll, and intuitive benefits enrollment, all in one connected and modern platform. Plus, your team of implementation experts makes the transition to Namely painless with best practice consulting, system configuration, training, and more. And it doesn't stop at implementation. Get ongoing dedicated support and enhanced services from experts who know your business as you continue to evolve. So your entire team can become experts themselves with the tools and services that help them succeed. Companies are built on people. Don't let either fail. Get the support you need and learn more about making the switch to Namely today by going to Namely.com. Don't wait. That's Namely.com. You know, I think it's a really powerful story in a, in a moment of, you know, I think reflection um, that I think is really important. And I think if we all take a step back and look at the interactions we've had, throughout our lives, we can all think of a time when, you know, we wish we could have taken it back or, or changed it. Um, I'm sure everybody listening to this right now is, is, you know, has, has a similar thought and that is, okay, so, um, we want to fix this, right? We want to, we want to stop these, um, these these types of hurtful or negative impacts. Um, we want to make sure that positive intent creates positive impacts and so often, um, in my world, we try to, we try to figure out what's the quick fix. You know, how do I, how do I put something together? Um, you know, put together the right training resource, put together a great policy, put together an employee resource group, you know, what is the silver bullet to fix this? And so I want to maybe start to talk a little bit about, you know, kind of the work environment. And, and as we think about it and we think about it in the context of, um, equity, diversity, and inclusion, uh, what are some of the steps that we can take to prevent some of the harm, uh, harmful impact? Yeah, there's so much that you just said right now that I kind of want to go back to. I think that the first thing is, gosh, I wish there was a, a quick fix, but there isn't, right? I mean, this is decades of biases that have been passed down from generation to generation and they are reinforced by our environment. Um, everything, you know, there's just, there's so much it's systemic, right? Um, so there is not going to be necessarily an easy fix. Um, I truly do believe that in order for this work to have impact, it cannot be a transaction, right? It cannot be something that we check a checkbox. Um, and, you know, in HR, you know, earlier Kyle and I were kind of chatting and I, you know, I said to Kyle, I'm like, you know, the, in HR, we're, we're tempted to, to go into compliance, right? I mean, because that's part of the work that, you know, HR professionals do and make sure that we're in compliance with everything that we have to be in compliance with. This is not that kind of work. Although there are elements of it, at the end of the day, if you really want to have transformation in the organization, it cannot be transactional. I believe this is an inside out type of work. It begins with you. So that would, that would be where I would start. 
you know, the step would be for individuals to engage in some sort of self-reflection so that we can really begin to see what we haven't seen. And I think that's the power. So in organizations that are getting started in this work, what I often recommend is it all depends, you know, where the organization is. Do you have individuals that have already taken some sort of professional development in the area of inclusion? And if you have, then you're already starting with a base. But if you if you haven't done much around that, then that that's the first step. We need to get individuals to see the reality of the situation and um, start practicing some of that empathy. This work can only is only impactful if individuals see the other side and they're able to, I, I can't claim that they're maybe going to walk in their shoes, but they're able to at least empathize, not sympathize, empathize with the issues and the reality that they face on a daily basis, right? So once we're able to practice some of that empathy, and um, we're able to see what we haven't seen. We, you know, I feel like it begins with some training, right? Um, but that training is not just information dump. You can pick up a book. You know, there's plenty of books out there um, in in the in the topic. Um, the latest one that we just read at you and I as part of our common read was Cast. Amazing book, amazing book. But I can see how individuals could potentially be offended by the book if you're not ready to read it, right? So um, it is a hard, it's a hard read. There's a couple of things, you know, in that book that I had to stop and say, wait, what am I actually reading here? Did I, did I read that correctly? Um, and, you know, kind of go back and process. So it is a, a pretty heavy book. So there's lots of information out there. So this type of work, this type of training is not um, information dumping. It's not about terms. It's really, it's about transformation, it's about reflective practice. It's about emotional intelligence, all through the lens of equity, diversity, and inclusion. All right. So I would say that that's kind of where it starts. It also has to be connected to some sort of commitment from the organization. So um, this is something that I've seen too, is that initiatives will start and we're kind of, we're kind of seeing that right now. And I, I feel, you know, if you do a quick search of employment, you will see tons of positions around equity, diversity, and inclusion, right? Everybody is bringing a specialist, a coordinator, a director, somebody, they're bringing in someone. Um, and I feel for those individuals who are engaging in that work because there's this sense that if you just have someone who's doing this work, that's enough. That's not enough of a commitment. There has to be an organizational commitment to really engage in the work and remove the barriers that are causing inequities in the organization. And that's actually where policy review comes in. Policy review can be very powerful for an organization, but again, not done on its own as a checklist, although it can be that, um, you know, policy review with in combination of, you know, some training and development and in some or institutional or organizational commitments that you are actually working towards can actually move the needle forward in this work. Um, so I would say that it's not in isolation, but policy is powerful. I mean, if we're able to review policy and make sure that it's equitable, um, so part of the work that I've done in particular with you and I is reviewing equity through an inclusive lens. So we talk about what does it mean to be an equity-minded practitioner? 
And um, once we are able to adopt that lens, how can we then bring that lens into our review of policy to make sure that our policy doesn't have language um, that might be excluding certain groups or that may favor other groups? Um, and so that way you're making sure that the policy is, is, you know, we're looking for fairness here across. Uh, but then the other piece too with policy review is that policies per se, you know, policies are reviewed every five to seven years, 10 years max, right? Depending on how many policies you have. Educational institutions have so many policies and some of them have not been reviewed probably every 10 years or whatever they've been reviewed. But, um, you know, chances are that you're not necessarily always going to find issues in the policy per se. It's the implementation of the policy. And if that has not been, if the procedure hasn't been written out in a way that there isn't interpretation so that biases can creep in, then um, that's where the issues really happen. That's where microaggressions happen. And some of those microaggressions are not necessarily in violation of policy. So that this is why individuals find it really hard to then go to HR and, and put forth a formal complaint. Because the truth is these microaggressions are not really in violation of any policy. They're just comments like the ones that I mentioned earlier that happened to me, that there isn't really a policy that says that, that you can't say something like that to someone, um, especially when it's such soft language. It's not a direct, explicit um, comment about race. So, you know, microaggressions are, are the hardest to be able to put forth as a complaint with HR to prove, to prove with, you know, without any kind of hard evidence, right? Because there are soft, there are soft evidence experiences that you have. So um, that's where the work gets really interesting is reviewing some of those procedures connected to policies, the practices, the implementation of the policy to ensure that it's an equitable and inclusive um, system, right, of practice. Yeah, I guarantee you that you had a lot of listeners nodding their head right there. And I can't tell you, um, I mean, I couldn't even count the number of times that I've had somebody bring a, a concern, a workplace concern to my office and and share it. And, um, you know, we've, we've had that conversation around, well, you know, this isn't really a, it isn't really a violation here. You know, like this is just, it's just a feeling that, that, that you have because of this situation or because of the way that person looked at you or that comment that was made. And, you know, and those are always, those, those are much more difficult than the black and white, like policy violations. Right? Like, mm-hmm. It's actually pretty easy to deal with a policy violation. You know, it's it, it, when it's clear cut and somebody clearly violated something, then you, it, you, you know what you can do and what the appropriate course of action is. It's a lot harder to work through the gray, the, the, um, you know, good intent that was a negative impact and the, that, that the comment that was made uh, as a, you know, maybe a lighthearted joke, but was interpreted as an extremely offensive, you know, um, interpretation. And it gets pretty tough. You know, one of the things I, I do love the, the, this topic though, because some of these, like these policy reviews, we, we always look at it with the compliance hat on. I mean, it's like, you know, if you write a policy and your entire intent with that policy is let's not get sued, like Mm -hmm. that is the wrong intent to write a policy, (laughs) right? Like you're not, you're not in the right mind space. (laughs) 
And the other piece of, of this too is, you know, who's reviewing the policy, right? If the person who's reviewing the policy is constantly the same person, that's the perspective that's going to be the most prominent, right? That person's life, lived experience is going to be the most, the most prominent. So you have to have multiple views at the table, right? So to give you an example, uh, we're currently reviewing some policy at UNI um, that some of it has to do with students. Well, we need to have a student voice there to represent a little, that, that perspective. Because again, we view things from our own little perspective. So, you know, I will view things from the lens of being a woman, from being a married woman, a mother, a uh, heterosexual, um, you know, all of those labels that I carry, right? Uh, so er- everything combined is how I view the world. Um, and somebody else views the world completely differently, right? So all they view the world from all of their 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 uh, labels right that they carry and all the things that make up who they are so we need to have as much representation as we can at the table when having those conversations um so that those perspectives are are and somehow we are connecting to all of those perspectives otherwise it, it's impossible to ask one person to to think of the perspective of multiple people and represent multiple people that's that that is an I would say uh, an unfair task um, for someone alone to do that. Uh, so we need to make sure that there it's a diversified group who's reviewing policies and not just policies, any kind of procedure, right? Um, that we're, that we're looking at um, to review through that lens because one person cannot be the representative of all because you haven't lived all the experiences from everyone. You know, that is the beauty about connecting with, you know, a lot of organizations right now are creating these safe spaces, right? So they're calling committees, the EDI committees and um, individuals, minoritized groups kind of tend to come together and maybe talk about their experiences. That gray area that you mentioned, Kyle, which is are all of those comments that just don't sit well with you. It's amazing how many people have also had the exact same comment happen to them, maybe by different people in different contexts right? Um, they, they've had the exact same thing happen because that bias lives in different people. So you will always experience that one person. We're going to, you know, do this stereotypical name, you know, the Karen lives in every, right? <laughs> in every circle, you will encounter one in every place that you go. Right. Um, so that's, that that bias, it lives on. I apologize to any listeners that are Karen. It's, uh, it's yes, my apologies. It's too. just an unfortunate name, but um, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think it's you know if I reflect back on you know um, on what you just said there, I think what an important point. You know, a lot of times the people who actually decide if a policy should exist or not are us, these people in human resources, right? And so you know. Um, for me, a middle-aged white man in the Midwest, you know, it, as we refine a policy, how does that impact my location in North Carolina or mm-hmm. Ponca City, Oklahoma or Merrimack, New Hampshire? And, you know, am I really the right person to be the final say for this? You know, no, there needs to be some additional collaboration. There needs to be some checks and balances. There needs to be some feedback loops so that we can understand, okay, is this policy having the intention that we wanted it to? 
I'll, I'll mm-hmm. give you an example. And, and I've used this before on the podcast, but um, a number of years ago at a different organization that I work for, um, we, we had an individual who um, had to do some anger management and he was a great employee, um, very diligent, certainly somebody that we wanted to retain. Um, but he had some mental health challenges with anger management issues. And under our current attendance policy, if he were to go attend those anger management classes, he would get in trouble. He would get attendance points, right? Mm-hmm. And the whole, it was this no fault attendance policy, which we don't have time to get into the, all the nuances there. But we, we had to make a decision. Do we, do we actually want what's best for this employee or do we want to adhere to this policy that doesn't seem to have, you know, it, the, the right lens on the employee experience, right? And ultimately, we made the decision that, you know what, <laughs> we're going to excuse this. This is the right thing, right? Um, and I had to violate my corporate policy in order to do that. But then we had to take that to, um, to the broader corporation and say, listen, this doesn't work, right? Like, th- like this is not right to do this. So we have to change it. And ultimately, you know, we put a work group together and made some changes. And, um, but that's just one example of like, you know, it, as HR, the easy thing to do would have been to just sit there and say, that's a point. No, nope, that's right. a point. You know, you got to try to do these appointments some other time. Um, you know, it's no fault, you know, it's just, it is what it, well, you know, what a, I mean, what a terrible message. <laughs> right? and, you know, and it, it took somebody who's implementing the policy to see that. Right. Um, and, you know, the power, the voice was from the manager, right? Because yep. the person having go, going through the policy uh, as a direct report, they don't really have a lot of voice here. They can go and complain and say, well, you know, that's the policy. I'm sorry. That's the response, right? But if all of a sudden those who are implementing the policy become a voice for those who don't have the power, that that is key. Um, you know, that was the turning point there. My, the, the phrase that I have the most trouble with in policies is at the discretion of the manager. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, so much can happen at the discretion of the manager, right? I mean, that is basically like an invitation for implicit bias to reign. Um, so I, the language there, and you'll be surprised how many policies still have that at the discretion of the manager, like it's up to the manager. And that kind of a policy it actually doesn't protect anybody like the, the, that poor manager, right? Like, man, you're putting everything on me. So if I said no, like, I mean, there is no protection here as a manager either. Right. Yeah, um, that's true. So it's, it's not doing any, it's not serving anything, any good for anyone. I think that's a really interesting point. You know, um, I came into an organization a number of years ago, and there was almost no policies. It was like the wild west. Right. And, and, but what was interesting is you would assume that that would just like empower your managers to, to manage, to lead. <laughs> what it actually did is it freaked them all out. They were all terrified because they knew if they, because it was their discretion. Like if they made a decision, it's on them. Right. And so what it actually led to was a lot of inaction and a lot of confusion and frustration. Um, and so it was actually good to put some, you know, some structures in place and some, some, clarity and consistency, but yeah, because um, it protects every, it's like a blanket yeah. of protection, right? I mean, otherwise it's just like a free for all. And <laughs> then, you know, did I do something wrong? You'll never really know if, if you cross the line. 
Yeah. Shooting, um, shooting from the hips, not great when you're, when you're dealing with policy yeah, and yeah. equity, diversity and inclusion. Yeah. So I've got, so I mean, this has just been a great conversation and, and uh, you know, I, I think we could probably go for another few hours, but your time is precious. Um, and, uh, and I want to shift gears and get into the rebel uh, HR flash round. So yes. um, are you ready? Okay. Let's All right, this. here we go. Uh, question number one, what is your favorite people book? Oh my goodness. I would have to say that it is, this is kind of people book, um, finding why, uh, um, Simon Sinek, why, you know, finding your why I love that book. It is such a powerful book. And I would say that, um, it's about purpose, but it's about, pur- I have kind of taken that into my connection with other people, you know, and just, you know, really finding that purpose of connection. Um, so not your typical people book, but I think it's a powerful one. Love that. Love that. So Simon has such good content. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. 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 Simon, if you're listening, you know, we'd love to talk to you. Come on. <laughs> come on. Yeah. Come on. Come on. <laughs> come on, Rebel HR. <laughs> All right. Question number two. Who should we be listening to? Okay. I am completely crushing on Brene Brown right now, intellectually. She is just, I love her. Everything that comes out of her mouth, I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Um, so I often listen to her podcast and I read all her books and I have, <laughs> I have a document that's titled thoughts and it's, I just like go in there and write everything down. Like I almost want to write a verbatim. Um, I just, I really, I, I, I feel like her work is just, it's impactful and it, it's very much what we need right now. You know, I mean, trust, vulnerability, shame. This is, you know, she often says we can't talk about diversity and inclusion without shame. And yeah, we can't. How can we talk about white privilege without shame and vulnerability? Right. So like, I mean, it is, it, I think that's just a wonderful person. That's who, who everybody needs to listen to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great, great content there. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, there's so much there that I think it's going to build off of this conversation and, and, you know, some really important topics. So, uh, last question here, how can our listeners connect with you? I would say the best way to connect with me is through LinkedIn. So my link, LinkedIn profile, feel free to add me, send me a message, happy to respond back, share resources, as well as just create that network of, you know, professionals who are, or, or not professionals, anybody who's interested in this work. I think that that is what will move mountains. Individuals saying, you know what, this is not right. And we're going to do something about it. Um, and not, you know, we might not be able to march down, you know, DC. That's not really what this work is about. It's about saying, Hey, I need to check myself and I need to check my circles. And it is the power of uh, the table conversation, right? what conversations are happening at your table. Um, and that is the power of transforming communities that can table conversation. Absolutely. We will have a link to, uh, the LinkedIn, uh, in the, in the show notes. So open up your podcast player, uh, check it out, connect with Erica, Erica, thank you so much. Uh, just a wonderful time uh, connecting with you and, and, uh, keep up the great work. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you for having me. Thanks. All right, that does it for the Rebel HR Podcast. Big thank you to our guests. Follow us on Facebook at Rebel HR Podcast, Twitter at Rebel HR Guy, or see our website at rebelhumanresources.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rebel HR Podcast are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of 
any of the organizations that we represent. No animals were harmed during the filming of this podcast. Baby.